If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Luke 24, the reading this morning is uh, the road to Emmaus. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus of Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, in sight of God, and all the people, And the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. And we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among among us amazed us when they were at the tombs early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets... He explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going further. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving thanks to them and giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road, and how he was recognized by them by the breaking of the bread. I want to thank you for the invitation today, especially to Richard, to come and preach. Whether he's thanking me afterwards, I've no idea. Um, greetings also from the Fellowship of St. Nick's Church. They're meeting right now, and they're very looking forward to celebrating Harvest Praise with you next Sunday evening for those that can come. So that's going to be something to look forward to. Shall we pray together? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that interprets that word to our hearts and our lives. We do pray that your Holy Spirit will now open our hearts to receive your word, that most precious treasure. And indeed, you will transform us through it for the betterment and the glory of your kingdom. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen. 
To my knowledge, um, Anglicans aren't renowned for preaching over 15 minutes. Uh, Beyond which we tend to believe that we might turn into theological pumpkins. When Richard said 25 minutes minimum, possibly 40 minutes, (laughs) my mind started spinning. Just how am I going to fill that much time? I read over what I was going to say, and perhaps it will feel more like a ramble than a preach. Um, But my 40-minute answer is to tell you something of a story. And it's my story. Not because I like hearing it, or indeed desperately need you to know about it, but because I suspect it is more like most of our stories than we'd care to think. It's deeply embedded within the story, even the story of those disciples headed off in the dark from Jerusalem to Emmaus, that difficult and dark night 2,000 years ago. I've known for a number of years, indeed from a very, very young age, that the Lord was calling me into full-time Christian service. I think at the age of 15 I was heading into mission, or so I'd hoped, But when I was 19, my vicar said to me that the Lord had kept him up all night, fancy this, all night, praying for me and my direction. And he felt that I was going to be called into ordination. Of course, that was a a prospect beyond beyond which I was willing to consider. I went to, um, to college in Hull, studied fisheries, lived with John and Nina for three years, got to know them very well, um, but basically ran a mile from ordination and um, instead um, became a public health scientist with Yorkshire Water. Did that for 13 years. Um, But during, um, through an an amazing um, set of um, coincidences, let the reader understand, okay, um, I trained in tropical public health and logically concluded that it, it was still mission overseas that I was best headed towards. And by this time, Elizabeth and I uh, were married with our three children. Um, So we pursued a number of mission agencies and had short-term mission experiences in Kenya and in Senegal. So I thought, mission, this has got to be it. Use my skills. In 1999, I answered an altar call at the Keswick Convention, and it was quite clear that God was calling me into full-time ministry. Uh, folks, this was serious stuff. I'm very serious about this. It's, it's still pasted into the back of my Bible, that um, card. Um, the thing is, for some strange reason, I end up talking to my new vicar who said, hmm, you should think seriously about getting ordained. Naff. It was going to be an 18-month process of discernment. And, and you need to know something about me. When I, when I preached or led worship at the previous churches that I'd been to, I was so nervous that my hands used to shake and the lectern that I'll be holding onto would start rattling like this and everyone could hear it from the back of church and there was this niggle. What about mission? What about my skills? What about my training in public health that could be used overseas? However, I attended a mission conference later that year and after an amazing set of coincidences, let the reader understand, I decided to pursue the mission opportunity instead for a water engineer's job in Ecuador. Uh, This was simply driven by God. The finances were raised in three weeks to get Lizzie and I out there for a three-week investigative trip. 
there was a real sense of the Lord's go-ahead to spend the time out there. There was any number of scriptural confirmations that God wanted us to go. This was the place for us. We were so excited. Even the Church of England director of ordinance was quite happy about using this experience of ours to settle our direction once and for all. We left feeling uh, that this was it. We were excited. Surely this was the place. So we arrived in Quito in the year 2001 and at 10,000 feet above sea level. Instantly my lips went blue for the lack of oxygen. And we were ready to go, apart from the stomach aches and all that kind of thing that followed. But there you go. Um, The mission agents took us all over the country. We looked at wells in the high Andes which is at 14,000 feet. We looked at water systems in the Amazon jungle, and finally newly commissioned wells in the deepest jungle on the Pacific coast. We went everywhere. And folks, that's where it all started. I mean, that's where it all started. This is the preamble, okay? Um, We had been on a narrow boat for three hours up this long river, and three hours back to look at these wells. This indigenous tribe had had wells provided. And I got sunstroke. I felt wretched absolutely bad the next day we had to head back to Quito and they they were going to do this by using small aircraft, you know, Cessna so uh, Lizzie and I were split up according to our weights she's the thin one and it's not a laughing matter Okay. Um, I I waited behind feeling wretched and the other guys left me in a cafe sipping coke in this place called San Lorenzo on the west coast of Ecuador And I put my baseball cap down over my eyes, and I felt terrible. And I started to pray that God would make me feel well again. In fact, I started to pray in tongues. Now, let the reader understand. Contrary to popular opinion, Anglicans can occasionally be found to pray in tongues. (laughs) Hallelujah. And God answered this one, stood right in front of you. He gave me this picture. I don't get pictures, okay? Don't do that. He gave me this picture of this open chest. And it was brimming with riches. And as clear as the day his word said to me, I heard his voice. He said, open your mouth and I will fill it. Okay, said I. And at that moment, the spirit of God just lifted the sunstroke off me. I was flown back to base in Quito that night. And the base leader said to me, um, I want you to give your testimony tomorrow morning at the service. I said, well, which service? He said, oh, the prison service. I thought, okay, which prison is this? Oh, it's Quito prison. And the kind of anxiety started to rise. Uh, Because the next day I did just that. I stood up in front of several thousand men and gave my testimony without a single set of nerves. Now, what I've told you about preaching in front of a... You know, 20, 30 people. The Lord had done something amazing. Folks, um, since then, they haven't managed to shut me up in public. God did that with me. He also opened to me the treasure box for me to teach others about him and about what he's done. About seven years later, um, I was leading a service and over in Brough. My previous church was Ellerton, Brough and Brantingham. Um, and we were reading from Psalm 81 verse 11. Can someone find that for me, please? Psalm 81, verse 11. It's in the middle of nowhere. And the first one to find it can read it. Yeah, please. But my people do not listen to my word. 
And again, carry on. Have we got the right one here? That doesn't sound like the right one to me. I will read it. Psalm 81. And verse 10. Forgive me. You are not wrong. I was. Do you want to start again? Sorry, verse 10. Anyone recognize that? Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Now, I'm not the sort of person that commits scripture to memory, but the Lord did. God has spoken to me from scripture without me even knowing the verse, and he brought it to fulfillment. That's the kind of thing that God did when we were there. That's why I meant it all started there. It was a really important place. Elizabeth, however, became very ill. We came back from... Um, uh, Ecuador, she contracted cerebral malaria and was in hospital for quite a long time. Um, and in actual fact, it was, she contracted it from the very same village where God had spoken to me. Um, it took her ages to recover from that. Ecuador became, for her, a byword for fear. She thought it was a place of death. Um, and there was a lot of death, in the, even in the mission agency staff. And we never returned. Never used my skills again as a water engineer. I decided to submit to the way that God, I felt, was calling me to ordination. Walk straight through the discernment process with the best of marks. I'm not boasting that. I'm just saying this is the way it worked out. Uh, Folks, it's so right for me to stand here and tell you that I am ordained and I am a vicar. It's really what God has called me to do. But I find it also quite hard, as you can probably sense knowing how the Lord confirmed to us that mission, that particular mission, and led us there, and then for us to have to leave it behind. I was sure he had said it was the way, by his word. But it wasn't. What do we make of that? Over the years I've tried to combine both mission and church. Perhaps it will work together. I've been to Kenya three times, and each time the water engineer door has not been opened even though I thought it might just be that kind of thing. My feelings, frustration, unfulfilled expectations, at the time, anger, grief for that which was lost. You name it, I've walked it in this particular area. Why does God send us one way, only for his will to eventually be in completely the opposite direction? Why does he do that? So we have this passage. Somehow I think this, the road to Emmaus speaks into what I've just said. It's a Sunday. And just two days after Jesus was murdered on a cross. Luke introduces two disciples to us. And in and verse, chapter 24 and verse 18 we learn one of them is called Cleopas. And there's a Clopas who's named in John 19 and verse 25. And he's married to one of the Marys. One of the lots of Marys. This, it happens in the Bible, isn't it? So let's assume it was Cleopas and his wife Mary that were the two disciples that were walking, they were talking about all those things that had happened on those, uh, through the seven miles road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Tom Wright, the previous Bishop of Durham, says of Luke's storytelling, this is Luke who's speaking, don't forget. If the story of the prodigal son had a claim to be the finest story ever told by Jesus... The tale of the two on the road to Emmaus must have an equal claim to be the finest scene Luke ever sketched. 
It's an amazing scene. It's thorough. You, could, you could do 40 sermons from this particular text. In fact, I suspect that the parable that is named and this story are akin to each other. It's about, a lot about journeying and walking and going different directions in them both. Jesus says later in the chapter that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. But Cleopas and Mary were headed out of Jerusalem. They were headed away from the other disciples. They were headed away from the action. And I've heard a number of sermons that preached that they were headed in the wrong way. But I'm going to hesitate from repeating that what I think is a mistake. I don't think they were headed the wrong way. They had to go that way, in actual fact, just as much as I had to go to Ecuador. I wouldn't want to judge them. In any case, Jesus certainly doesn't do that himself. Why were they heading out of Jerusalem? Was it fear? Jews and crucifixion, persecution. Was it utter grief at Jesus' death? Oh, well, that's it, then we better go home, sort of thing. The beginning of this passage is shot with the language of despair and dashed hopes. Listen to the language and subject of the discussion. We had hoped that he was the one who redeemed Israel, we hear them say. And do you hear the past tense? We had hoped. That's significant. In short, the disciples left because of the cross. Their three-year dream of Israel being redeemed had ended in yet another crucified Messiah. And here they were walking in the valley of the shadow of death. Which valley? Jesus' valley. Jesus' death. And I can tell you, it's, a, it's easy to get lost in that valley. It's a place of lost sheep. The lost sheep of Israel. It's a place where prodigal sons end up in, lost in pigsties. And it's a place where we can lose the very coin that promised to help us out of poverty, to use just Jesus' parables. It's no surprise that Mary and Cleopas find themselves there, because Jesus himself said, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. When these two imagined that Jesus' mission to restore the lost house of Israel had failed, they were in themselves a self-fulfilling prophecy. They were a microcosm of lost Israel. They were lost themselves. And Jesus comes alongside them as they journey to Emmaus through this valley of death. Just like the shepherd who helps the writer of Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. Jesus doesn't chastise them for heading out. He walks with them in their direction. It's very significant. He doesn't even remind them that they are supposed to be finding the lost sheep of Israel themselves rather than getting lost. Rather, the Lord Jesus, who said of himself in John 10 and verse 11, I am the good shepherd, just walks with them in the direction that they are going. Incredible, our God, isn't he? Doesn't put any weight on us in some respects. All that matters is he is with them, even if they don't recognize him on the journey. We've all been lost. But I wonder if that is you today. Do you feel lost? Has grief led you to a place of bewilderment? And of course, it might be a loss of a loved one. But how about the loss of your ministry? How about the things you've had to give up? Because of ill health. 
How about broken relationships? Or the fact that the things that you were certain about in Christianity simply haven't delivered on their promises. You thought God was going this way, and you followed. But he's not there, and you're lost. If you're there, you are in very good company this day. If you find yourself in that valley, Cleopas and Mary got there before you, in fact. They are walking in the shadow of the cross. But the shadow is about to be moved because of the one that walks with them. It is Jesus. He is their God. They don't know it. He is our God, and we do. And what I want to ask is, is this your image of God? It's another question. Or do you have a harsher version, one that will only walk with you if you are going in his direction? You may not recognize this picture of God, but neither do the two disciples. Are you a straggler just like Cleopas and Mary, someone who needs to be found by Jesus? If so, there is good news. He walks with you. You may already know Jesus in this way. So the challenge is different. How do you walk with others who are lost sheep? Do you walk with them in their direction? Or do you expect them to walk in yours? What's Jesus' pattern here? Either way, did you notice that this story is not about where the journey is headed? It's more about the journey itself. Interesting, isn't it? We're always... um, We always want to find our destinations, don't we? (laughs) When God's more important than the journey. More importance, the journey's more important to God, I mean. The next thing we notice is that Jesus simply listens to Cleopas and Mary as they walk together. There's there's no hint of him stepping in in as a know-it-all. He keeps his identity hidden when it would have been so easy for him to try and prove himself to his old friends who were so obviously upset. And that's what I think I would want to do that, wouldn't I? I would want to talk to them, oh, it's me, you know, and we can sort things out. But he doesn't do that. He just stays silent. He lets them speak. So what did Jesus hear? They said, haven't you heard? I find this really amusing in some respects. Haven't you heard to Jesus, who's the center of their news story? (laughs) <laughs> that's what they're saying they almost tell us that they expect something amazing to have happened as, these, as they relate the story of the women at the tomb which was empty even say but they did not see him almost expecting that they should have seen him here standing with these disciples who suspect that the resurrection should have happened but probably didn't and actually the person that's standing with them is the resurrection and the life <laughs> they don't see that And he simply listens to all of their dashed hopes. I've often wondered why the disciples didn't recognize Jesus. And it's a common theme when you read the resurrection encounters. They're all like this. What was it that really kept them from seeing him? I don't know if you've ever tried to look through a pair of binoculars the wrong way. It's an odd kind of experience, isn't it, really? They don't work, I have to say. Um, at least not as binoculars. And and if you do, you may sort of see what you're aiming at, but it'd be very small and quite well ill-defined. It'll feel very uncomfortable as well. And the same was true when the people of Israel read their scriptures. They had been seeing it as the long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering. But it was instead the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. That's how it works. That was God's plan. Jesus the Messiah was given the task of redemption. Like Israel, the disciples didn't recognize that these things must take place. 
Similarly, they didn't recognize Jesus when he'd accomplished them. Luke uses this word, this Greek word, epigenosko. And it's a strange word. But this is the word to recognize. And it actually means to know fully, to realize, or to come and come to an understanding. It's much bigger than just to recognize. So is it more, it, it is more than I recognize your face. Do you know what I mean? It's more than that. Um, what kept them from recognizing him was their failure to understand God's plan and purposes. They didn't expect to see Jesus on the road because he was dead. Jesus gives a little, gets a little firm with the two of them on the road. He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart, he said. Yet still they, he, didn't, he didn't choose to reveal himself, nor does he chastise them. He, instead, he challenges them with the scriptures. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets them in all um, the scriptures, the things concerning himself. What a Bible study that would have been. Jesus does this from their place, from the road to Emmaus, heading from Jerusalem. He's working from them outwards. Reading the scriptures is fundamental to understanding who God is and how to walk with him. Certainly when we consider, when we're considering Ecuador, Lizzie and I were keen for it to be supported by scriptures. And we had so many of them. But I think there is more to it than that. There has to be more to it than that. We had many words of scriptures that led us across the world only to end up back here in the very, co- very county where I was born. How ironic is that? Cleopas and Mary would have known the scriptures very well indeed. The Jews did. They would have heard Jesus expound them and yet they didn't get the resurrection. It took a Bible study of epic proportions but given to them in the valley of the shadow of death for them gradually to waken up. To comprehend what was going on. Didn't recognize him still. But they were starting to understand the storyline. Notice even with the scriptures unfolded. These disciples still did not recognize Jesus, uh, who Jesus was. Because it takes more than the Bible to do that. I'm not being offensive when I say that. I'm being intentional. The scriptures are a means to an end, a very important means. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, says Psalm 105. The scriptures enlighten, they expose, and they confirm the will of God and the way we should walk. These disciples now understood, but they still did not see. They commented later, did not our hearts burn within us as we talked, as he talked um, with us on the road while he opened to us the scriptures. There's a kind of burning going on in their hearts that produces perhaps some understanding of what God has done. And at those God opportune times in our lives when our hearts are open to learn, those difficult times I suspect, perhaps it's the burning that prepares our hearts to recognize Jesus. The burning that goes on. It's only a preparation, though, 
And I'm only teaching from my example here. So you can see there's a sense of emotion with this. It's, it's, I'm developing this. I'm trying to understand this myself just as much as, um, as anything else. The Lord had to take me 16,000 miles round the world for me to learn and be equipped for the ministry I'm now in. It, might be, it seems an expensive journey, I have to say. But I, that's what I'm learning. Even this week, even this week, the Lord has been saying to me this, this very thing. You can hear Jesus saying to Richard, Oh, foolish one and slow of heart. Because God is still teaching me the lesson. Perhaps it's not about the direction. Perhaps it's about the journey itself. Which is very good news. Because it means that the starting place is always here. Always where you're stood. It is always now. It's not later. And it's not over there in some spiritually unattainable place given to you by that very spiritual person. It's now here and right where you are. We begin just where we are on the road, right now, irrespective of the rightness or the wrongness of our direction. Jesus doesn't expect us to come to him. He always makes the first move, in fact. His move is always to get us from the failure of the cross to the potential of the resurrection. This is the journey that they're on. And I use that advisedly. I'm not diminishing the cross in any way. But if our spirituality is stuck at the cross, then we only have half the story. And that part of the story ends in failure, death and hopelessness. For even Jesus said this. He said in Hebrews, it's saying, He's the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Puts the cross behind him too. That is the journey Cleopas and Mary were on. Leaving behind the despair and the crushed expectations that the cross had left them. And edging towards the explosive possibilities that the resurrection would reveal. Little did they know it. And friends, that is the journey we are all on. We are caught inextricably between the cross and the resurrection. Every day of our lives. Where will you head? Where will you face? Which way are you going to go? I'm not a dreamer. I don't have dreams. Um, and so when I do have dreams, I remember them, okay? One night in April, I had a dream. That sounds quite profound, doesn't it? <laughs> it was a very clear dream. Don't get me wrong. Richard was in my dream. Your church was in my dream. And I remembered it. And somehow the Lord was saying in that dream, I say the Lord actually because that's my interpretation, okay? Uh, that your church and our church needed each other. You might think, well, what can you know, what need from St. Nick's? I have no idea. But actually, this is what I felt the Lord was saying. In some way, there was a journey we needed to walk together. A journey perhaps that starts this morning. Perhaps it's because St. Nick's has premises to be shared that on occasion you may need. We want to generously do that, allow that to happen. Perhaps it's because you have a sense of life that we need to experience. And that will be an honest truth. Richard and I have met regularly, prayed together and agreed to cautiously think this through, even organise a joint service. We we said one particular date. Uh, And last time... um, 
uh, we met, Richard said to me, hmm, could it, would it be possible to change the date? Because that's kind of not the obvious date for us. The 5th of October were the obvious date. And I thought, hang on, that's strange. Because we don't have, uh, you were saying you didn't have anywhere else to meet that day. Um, but the night of the 5th of October, of course, is our harvest supper. We would have had a supper at the back of church. And it seemed so natural to be able to extend our invitation, our welcome, our hospitality to you so that you can worship and fellowship with us. Um, and that, we're looking forward to that as a congregation. Um, it's a simple thing. Um, but that's exactly what I had in the dream, is that we would offer our premises and you would offer some life. Praise the Lord, eh? Sharing together our premises and our life. Our reading concludes. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther. I'm not even going to go into that. It's amazing. But anyway. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. That's that word again. And he vanished from their sight. And the disciples ran from there the full seven miles back to Jerusalem. Okay? And they didn't have trainers. And they told the other people all about it. But the story reiterates the conclusion that Luke really wants us to hear. The others say to to Cleopas and Mary, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And he goes on to say, then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Fascinating. This is truly a journey from the cross to the resurrection, because we hear that Jesus has risen, and now Peter's also seen Jesus. From losing a rabbi to the cross, to recognize the resurrected Christ in their very midst. The Lord of all the cosmos is stood in their midst. The first person that's raised to life after death and will never die again they recognize Jesus not on the journey not in the revelation of the scripture but in the breaking of bread so my mind jumps immediately to Eucharist to Holy Communion you see I'm an Anglican so I should do that and we celebrate communion it's quite obvious from scripture what the wine does what it represents the wine represents the blood of Christ which cleanses us from every sin it's a representation and we can take it by faith says Luther And it will become what it is. But what of the bread? And I know you'll say, well, it represents Jesus' broken body. And of course, it does. But what does it do? I'm a priest. I'm struggling to find out. It's not so clear what the body does, what the broken bread does. It's about fellowship and all different kinds of things. But what does it do theologically? What, What is this about? Well, in this story, the broken bread enabled the disciples finally to see. The actual word, once again, as I've said, is epikinosko, to know fully, to recognize, to realize, to come to understand. That's what the bread does. But they were not just coming to recognize someone they had previously known, because that doesn't make sense whatsoever. You, you don't forget the face of someone who, who you've just spent the last three years with intensely, two days later. You don't forget their face. The broken bread enabled the disciples not to recognize Jesus of Nazareth, 
so to speak. But Jesus, as a resurrected Lord of the universe, I think was substantially different. He must have been. Gosh, I've got, we've got to be sensible about this, haven't we? At communion, we break bread. It's not just about celebrate, celebrating the memorial of Christ's sacrifice, because the wine functions like that. It's about perceiving his risen presence with us, known through the breaking open of bread together. Somehow by faith, breaking bread together brings forward a glimpse, a foretaste of the coming marriage feast of the Lamb, I think. And you can see this if you scrutinize the Lord's Prayer. I'm bouncing around a bit here. But if you look at the Lord's Prayer, call to mind the verse which says, Give us this day our daily bread. You may think, well, it's a simple verse. But it's not. It's a complicated verse. Scholars are baffled as to how to translate this properly. Because there are two Greek words which speak of the same thing. They speak of time, day, and daily. Why have them both in the same sentence? Why? Because some have translated better, give us today tomorrow's bread. Give us today tomorrow's bread. Lord, by faith, may we have the bread of the kingdom not yet here. Lord, by faith, may we experience the bread laid on the table beyond the resurrection of the Lord, that your kingdom may have come more fully in this place. That's the kind of expansion that I would like to add to that verse. Perhaps the broken bread is how we start to move from the valley of the shadow of death, leaving behind its grief and pain. So by feeding on Christ himself, we look forward to the future kingdom in a new and refreshing way. Likewise, it's no surprise um, that we never celebrate communion on our own. It's It's not a thing we do on our own. We break bread together. It's in common fellowship that we understand more of the presence of the risen Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour. And that is a long way around of saying, in the economy of God's kingdom, and especially in these days, folks, we need each other in ways that will demonstrate the Lord is present among us like never before. Actually, the world is looking to the church. And it's seen division. It's seen argument. It's seen all manner of sinfulness, but it needs to see something of the kingdom for it to be captivated and challenged and excited and brought to faith. These are ways that respect what the Holy Spirit is saying today. Not yesterday, but for our tomorrow. Give us tomorrow's bread today. Not that we should all become clones, rather we bring to the common table our corporate personalities as a church, as churches, those specific gifts within our church for the service of all God's people. The journey of Cleopas and Mary was just that. It took them on their way from letting go of their past, it allowed them to unburden their griefs and failed expectations to Jesus. On this difficult way, they properly stated Oh, sorry, started to understand God's purposes. They, they, not, they only started to, uh, but they only started to look to the future, to recognize Jesus for who he really was, risen and alive, when they broke bread in fellowship with him and with each other. That's the time it happened. And that was where the transformation started for them. 
That is the potential that lies before in each and every one of us, both as individuals and indeed as our fellowships. I wonder if we may just dream together and realize through meeting one another in fellowship a new sense of who Jesus is in this place. Amen.